Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. I'm your host, Shanna Crumley, and this is The Future Is, a mini-series all about Columbia alumni who are the leaders of today and creators of tomorrow. I just wanted to work with people like my parents, um, and I began critically thinking, and that was sort of the first instance I began critically thinking about what it would mean to do um, work focused on the folks that are struggling here at home. This week, we'll hear from a recent grad who's been a champion of human rights and underrepresented groups ever since she was a student here on campus when she was an active student leader. Ayushi Roy and I actually met back as interns in the State Department during college, and we've been friends ever since. I called her in Oakland to hear about her work in public policy and talk about her transition to graduate school in MIT this fall. This episode contains sensitive topics, so please be mindful of who's listening. Ayushi Roy graduated in 2014 with a degree in Middle Eastern Studies and Human Rights. She was active on campus working with the Cultural Resource Center, the Columbia Political Review, and several student-led Title IX groups. After graduating, Ayushi stayed in New York for another year to work on her social venture, a sexual violence text-based hotline that won the first Columbia Innovation Award. I have since come back home to the Bay Area, to California, and I've been working in Oakland City or at Oakland City Hall, living in SF, um, for the last almost three years now, which is really exciting. So talk about that a little bit. You and I actually met when we were interns at the State Department many years ago, and I know you've done other stuff in refugee policy. Um, what's the transition from refugee policy to city government been like? I, refugee issues are still very close to my heart. Um, my family has a history of uh, forced displacement from different countries, and that's what has always you know, made me want to work on that issue. And in a lot of ways, I still do. Um, I'm proud to say that I've never worked outside of a sanctuary city, which is, which is huge. Um, and even when I was working at the federal level, it was still for refugees with, you know, the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. So um, I went ultimately from international issues to domestic issues. Um, and, even, and this is, you know, sort of noting as an aside that even in school, I only ever studied international issues. Every internship of mine was with an international either um, nonprofit or migration agency or, you know, federal agency. And... Um, including, you know, like even UN bodies that work on refugees. And coming back, well, you know, debating between doing my, my uh, graduate program, again, on displacement and um, staying in New York, I ultimately decided to stay in New York because I realized that so much of the battle or so many of the fires we need to put out were at home. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, my parents' experience with displacement was again sort of most critical at home or in this country and how cool would it be if I could work with other people like my parents like my family right here in New York um, instead of you know kind of romanticizing the struggles of of communities abroad that I have almost you know zero to no understand like very little understanding of mm-hmm. right um, and I think that it's I think that, unfortunately, a lot more money and attention, it's a lot sexier to work on issues abroad because of the way that funding sometimes works. Um, And I, you know, had a, it was a difficult decision because I was going to have a lot more money if I was, if I was working on these issues abroad. Um, 
but decided ultimately that it would be more responsible and more true to my own values to stay here and work on the issues close to home and work with communities that were trying to um, be settled or, you know, we're working through the settlement process in the United States, whether at a most, you know, sort of micro level, like let's teach them English and get them jobs, which is, it sounds micro, but it's, it's really critical, right? Like that family's foothold into this country for the first time in a place where they might not, they might not know anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though what it looks like on the day to day, which I was doing, you know, in San Jose, California, which is my hometown, I was physically, I was like literally driving my parents' little Honda. <laughs> around between different apartment buildings and Target and Macy's and Chipotle trying to get people hired and trying to find them apartments and negotiating for their lease um, and getting them like bus passes and 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 like it's just it's so it's, it feels so minute um, and so banal or mundane maybe but it's like ultimately the kinds of um, relationships I've built with these families is so much more powerful to me than what I would have done if I was working for, like, you know, a policy agency or international organization. So I applied in the fall of my senior year for graduate school, and at around the same time, I just started crafting my thesis, and um, I really thought I was going to write my senior thesis on on Palestine and on refugees that I was working with in the West Bank um, and a lot of the camps there that I was living in. But I, while writing my thesis, realized two things. A, how, like, I realized the limited, nature of the limited access to literature on those refugees, which as an undergraduate thesis writer, I need access to. Mm-hmm. Um, and second, and more importantly, I realized that a lot of the struggles I was describing and a lot of the drafts I was reviewing um and trying to like read out loud to my parents and explain <laughs> because they 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 don't have the level of education that I've been fortunate to receive um, was something that they were just like oh I understand they, they, every time they were just like oh of course like of course you do that but you forgot this like you forgot you know the basic part of like mm-hmm. ordering a sandwich <laughs> yeah. like you yeah. don't understand how hard it was for me to get food in this country and I was like oh you're right like I'm overly intellectualizing this it's just a matter of I think like where our personal values lie or where we feel like we could be most it sounds like you also went from an academic and theoretical approach to more of like a practical on the ground response. And of course, when we were back at the State Department, we were more at the macro level dealing with the millions of people and the billions of dollars. What's it like at the city hall level in Oakland? Actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to just kind of like jump on what you just said, because I think it deserves, I think it deserves a lot more attention, especially if the listener is someone who's a Columbia undergraduate, like I once was. Um, and I, and I think what I want to talk about is just, talk about briefly is, um, the value that we place on sometimes and this is like a general we that may not apply to everybody, of course, but a value that I, I'll say I placed on overly intellectualizing the material that I was working with um, instead of really breaking it down to its most sort of basic essence because of the guilt I felt personally over the financial cost of my education. And I felt somehow that I wasn't fulfilling what I was supposed to be doing after, you know, 
thousands of tens of thousands of dollars if I wasn't hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars if I wasn't um, pursuing like a very intellectual or very what we might traditionally consider to be like a more valuable path. Mm-hmm. And um, I think after graduation, I decided to like rebel against that in every single facet that I could. <laughs> I decided to you know, defer my graduate education. I decided to work as as a chauffeur for refugee families to get them housing and jobs. I decided to apply to culinary school. Like, I decided to do <laughs> everything <laughs> that my, I think, Columbia education as an undergrad had somehow um, coded in me, like, not to do. And mm-hmm. and I, I think that's super important that we, as, like, undergrads, or at least I, if I could teach my, my, my 18-year-old self, could tell myself, you know, it's there's no greater value in like intellectualizing things. My parents didn't do that, and they didn't need to that to be the incredible people they are. And you were really involved on campus, right? You were particularly active in Title IX groups. Can you tell us a little bit more about the hotline you started in response to a need that you saw here on campus? Yeah. Um, so, for our listeners, Title IX is a federal law that prohibits sexual discrimination in education, and it relates to sexual assault and violence on campuses as well. There were a lot of different variables that led into the creation of that hotline. Um, the hotline was um, the idea of it started my my spring of senior year, and um, it was at the time. So at the time on campus, there was a lot of protests by a variety of organizations. No Red Tape was a big one um, that was leading the charge in a lot of different um, places, and the there was of course the mattress protest. Um, with Emma Falkowitz and um, the conflation of like the conversation that was happening in you know campus media, um, as well as the protests that were visible on campus in the quad on many days, um, sort of led to this. And and of course, like there were personal conversations as well that were happening because I'm a survivor of sexual violence from my time at Columbia, and that. And, you know, it's the conflation of, like, the spaces that I was in, the um, the groups I was privy to where we were having conversations, uh, both about our personal stories and um, being resilient, as well as the protests on campus that were publicly uh, being covered by, by news media, just made me realize that there were so many – there was so much more that needed to be done, of course. That's, that's no shocker, right? Um, but I think it was the point at which – there was a specific incident. This is, this is, if I start fumbling, it's because this is just still hard for me to, to, to wrap my mind around and like talk about sometimes. Um, there was one particular night when there was a rally on campus for, um, for Nora Tape, and I came back to my dorm after the protest, um, and one of my friends had like been calling me and I didn't, I just saw her missed calls and I picked up, I like ended up calling her back and realized that she was calling me because she had just been hurt by someone else. And, um, and she was still processing a lot of different things and was trying to process it with someone else and knew that you know, I had had my own experience um, that was fairly similar to hers or that she thought was fairly similar to hers. And it was in that moment that I just realized that while, you know, all these incredible students are outside fighting the good fight, there were still people that were being hurt. Mm-hmm. 
and that something needed to be done ASAP. Like it's something needed to be done yesterday, right? Um, and that if this if the campus wasn't going to do it, then like someone had to. If the administration wasn't going to, then then we just had to. And um, I decided to, you know, um, work with a friend who had received the Columbia Innovation Grant. Um, and initially, her idea was to build a very different type of product that would be useful for, like, business situations. And we – and pivot is not even the right word. We just completely scrapped <laughs> the old idea. And um, she was a survivor as well, and she and I began working on the on Hotline, which was basically a texting version of Nightline, um, which is currently run, you know, with Barnard and Columbia. And the the idea behind it was that we would have an, a way for people who are, you know, going either through, you know, like a one-time incident or if it's like an interpersonal violence with a partner, um, they've been restricted in a period of time. Either way, they should have an opportunity or an outlet really to ask for help um, because that call that I received, imagine it, like how many people would need to make that kind of call and may not have a friend to do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, and also the, the guts of my friends to even pick up the phone and call. Right, like there. I mean, I didn't have that kind of courage when I went through my situation. When I was in my, when I had my experience, like I, that wasn't. I, I didn't know who to call. I didn't even feel comfortable saying it out loud. So for you to have to, for someone to have to pick up the phone and actually verbalize what they just went through, I can't. I can't imagine. And not anonymously either. And not anonymous, exactly. And so imagine. And so now imagine if there was a less conspicuous way of being able to ask for help such as a text message, which is just also so much more generationally relevant, right? Like a lot of people on campus are probably now, I mean, and now I just feel old, but they probably had cell phones since they were, you know, in middle school or earlier. That's true. It's the first thing that people are comfortable with and, and think about in an urgent situation. So can you explain how the hotline works? So it basically um, was a, it's, it's a number that's given to each campus the same way that a calling hotline might be. And um, the the technology of it was kind of cool. We were working with um, an organization named Twilio. And in Twilio style, we were basically using laptop. You could, phones could text and the text would be received on a computer screen. And so that way it would allow a certified uh, counselor to receive the messages on a, a screen as opposed to having to feed, right, like you know, hundreds of messages or how many ever they were receiving on their own personal cell phone. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of in this really smooth way operationalizing the receiving of text messages and yet keeping them personal. Um, and so that's that's at the most basic level how it was working. The cool thing about it is that it was all encrypted as well. And so when the text messages are received, you don't know as the as the receiver, the certified counselor, for instance, you don't know who's actually texting. You don't know the number. You don't know anything about that number um, or about the person. And that and that's the way that we were able to maintain the security of the system as well. Um, the other part about it in terms of privacy was every all the texts would be um, would be gone, would be erased at the end of the conversation. So that, so because that's how phone hotlines are able to also operate, right? Like there's no, you can't subpoena information because there's no information that's been recorded. Exactly. And so that's what we began doing for text. 
Mm-hmm. What what happens at the end of the conversation? Like, what's the ultimate goal of this exchange? The goal, the goal, yeah, no, great question. The goal is to connect people to resources that they might need. Mm-hmm. That's, it's as simple as that. It's just we're just a bridging body. Um, sometimes, sometimes we don't need to bridge. Sometimes the person might be coming in to talk about um, just you know what they're going through, and they might want you know someone to just be a listener, to just be a shoulder in that moment, and we provide that as well. But in the situation that they need something that's more it's in a you know more severe situation where they might need help to be uh, called or they need more assistance or a referral, we provide that as well. And 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 the cool thing about um, when I say referral, I do not mean to law enforcement at all or public safety. What I mean is there are so many other opportunities for people to find um, support in moments of need that don't require calling the campus security. And that's also one of the reasons why this hotline was really critical was because we wanted to provide an alternative to to students who wanted to, who, you know, otherwise might have um, called the hotline and been reported or called law enforcement. Yeah, so that, that in between place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I mean it's I read a lot of the stories. I did some some research on the um the red tape and the kind of the mm-hmm. sequence of events but just kind of like the ongoing um situation. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting because so many stories, like that that's exactly the issue was that they didn't know who to talk to preliminarily right. in order to make a decision right. which person right. to call, which thing to bring forward or not right. and how. Uh, so if it's just a case of having some some allies, um, yeah, you're talking about it past tense. Is it something that's still happening, or did it was it a one time thing? How is it scalable? What's the situation? Yeah, um, so it's, this is this is an interesting conversation in terms of just um, thinking about social enterprises at large. I think that unfortunately, when unfortunately social enterprise, especially with our experience with them, acquisition is really hard. It's really hard for our product to be bought by another organization. We tried having RAIN, which is the um, Rape Abuse Incest uh, National Network. Um, to, you know, we tried we tried working with RAIN and having them purchase our product and bring it on full time because you know there's quite a few organizations that do this work and do really great work, mm-hmm. but don't have a texting alternative for their clients. Yeah. And so yeah. we figured this would be something that they could at least use as part of their existing um their existing offering, right? And uh we ended up learning the hard way that that's actually not how a lot of these organizations work, especially because they're nonprofits. Nonprofits aren't like corporate entities that can acquire startups. Mm-hmm. That's not how that works. Or at least currently it's not how it works. And so we ran across a really big hurdle and all we could do, the best that we could do would be, was, was, um, to give them back to, to campus itself. And so we offered the, um, hotline back to campus, back to Nightline, which was awesome. And then we also were able to offer it to Berkeley and Berkeley ended up taking the product. Um, and that's when I actually moved out here. So it was cool that I got to work with them, but Berkeley took the product into their startup lab and basically just like, totally evolved it into a product that they meshed with um, two other tech startups that were working on violence prevention. And so they built this, like, really neat – it's like this – it's sort of this, like, monster app that does every – I mean, you can do everything from, like, look for resources to report to just document and hold on to the – and hold on to the document until you feel comfortable reporting. Um, Mm. It just – it kind of – it offers a student every single uh, point of access in the wake of 
uh, you know, emergency or crisis situation. That's great. So in, yeah. In some ways, you're really able because like every every good startup depends on a really good survey base, right? Like the more mm-hmm. users you can access, the more mm-hmm. likely it is to be useful. So if you're mm-hmm. you're working with Columbia and Berkeley, then you've got a huge base of of people who totally. will benefit and and totally. inform the work. That's great. That's and awesome. That's I think that's the outcome, though. I mean, benefit is really what I was like. I have I had very little interest, especially when I was working on this, to make it something that was mine, make it something that was branded. I mean, even now it has very little web presence. I think last time I checked, oddly enough, the um, the most information you could find about our product was from the portfolio of a designer that we worked with at General Assembly. <laughs> and, Whoa. <laughs> and her and her portfolio is online, so you mm-hmm. can through her portfolio find out about. Um, the work that we were doing, and you can read all about it. But I, I mean, we as a team didn't actually publish any more than we, like, at bare minimum needed to, and that too to, like, specific parties we were working with. Because some of the things, and here's the other thing, is, like, in this work, advertising what you do is is useful if you're advertising to, to, to let students know that this service exists. But advertising is a problem when that number becomes so well known that your your abusive partner perhaps sees that number on your phone and like gets alerted, right? And so it's really tricky. It's really really marketing is a is a double edged sword in this kind of work. Yeah. Um yeah, and so point. I decided to err on the side of privacy and just not market at all. And and I had so many I mean especially like so many friends of mine that are more formally in the startup space were just like, well, why are you, then what's the benefit in this to you? Like, why are you doing this? Like, is this not going on? How is this going to go on your, um, you know, resume, resume, resume? And I was like, that's not what I'm doing this for. <laughs> this is personal, right? Like, this is like people's lives. These are, this is a whole other, and I wish that they didn't have to be sort of uh, mutually exclusive in that way. And I hope that moving forward, there will be greater spaces for, um, for like social, for social startups um, that allows them to, especially that are working in this like tricky space that deals with like people's health. Um, but as of as of then, it was just a very interesting space to maneuver. It sounds like you learned a lot both inside of the classrooms and then outside the classroom at Columbia. Um, what else? What else did you learn here that you've taken with you? I mean, let's be real, right? Like Columbia is an incredible community of people and of incredible minds and and. We, I think a lot of people go through some degree of like imposter syndrome when they land on campus for the first time. And I know I did. And it was my first time in the big city. I was a suburban girl from California. I wore way too much color and I had to just like, you know, <laughs> redo everything from like my words to my style of speaking. I think as a result, to answer your question, a lot of the conversations I had with people that I still think are way more brilliant than I am, way more just, you just, their, their mind works in ways I could I can only ever just listen to and like hear reflected in the way that they speak. Um, and it's so powerful to me. And a lot of those conversations are what I carry with me. Coming to Columbia, I felt like I found my tribe because it was like, oh, great. I'm not the only one who does this. Everyone like wildly driven and wildly um, interesting person. And, you know, people work on clubs or volunteer activities or internships that are far beyond the scope of what they're formally studying because their brain just like operates at this at this incredible you know this incredible way you really came out of your shell in college 
it seems like you've taken the imposter syndrome and discomfort of that and then made it kind of into into an indicator of growth. It's a sign of growth. I don't think that there's ever going to be a point at which I'm like, I am exactly who I want to be. Because let's, because someone like me, if I ever came to that point, that means that I haven't done it correctly. It means I haven't housed myself. It doesn't make sense for me to ever comfortably say, I'm good. I'm done. I'm fine right here. Like I have a fear of not, of, um, of, of not having my head or my thoughts grow in the way that they're currently growing. Because every single day, I feel like I have to journal um, in order to capture all the things that, all the stimuli that are that's around me that's forcing me to think differently or sounds in the way that I think. And I'm the same way. I, I I'm so used to a frenetic pace, so I expect that, and I sort of link. I guess I link my happiness to how busy I am. How do you, how do you keep a balanced? I guess the question is, how do you keep a balanced busy? This is a great opportunity for me to talk about mental health. Um, mental health is something that I did not take enough time to consider, especially as a um, as a Colombian, as an undergraduate there. The pace of life here, the difference in that pace of life, sort of forced me even more than moving off campus um, to acknowledge my my mental health and take care of myself because it's exactly what you said. I found that I was tying my productivity with my self-worth. I think as women, as identifying women, there are already so many issues tied up with, quote, self-image and, and self-worth. And then we have the regular amount of career pressure and then add the two together. That's that's a lot. No, it's, and, it's so, and it's so unfair. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something that I, um, something that my yoga instructor said yesterday that I thought was, that I thought was super powerful, and um, <laughs> so I'm going to read it to you because I think it's so accurate and it's so appropriate for to think about, especially like you said, because we hold ourselves to an un, like it to a standard that's just so unhealthy. She said, "Take refuge in the moment. It's okay to not move forward. Enjoy the space in between the moments." I thought that was really powerful. We're just giving yourself permission to not have to move forward. Like, you do not need to move forward all the time. And that sounds so simple, but for me, it was really difficult after graduation. And it it ultimately, like, I crashed and burned really hard. I'm very fortunate that I had access to mental health support. But, you know, that's something that I, I'm talking about because I wish that we all talked about more. Like, this should not be stigmatized. I think this is a, a concern for people um, in a lot of different walks of life. And that's what Ayushi is most passionate about, improving the lives of the people around her, whoever they may be, wherever they are. From refugees to mental health, Ayushi's bottom line is just to put the humanity back into public policy. Thank you for listening to The Lowdown and this mini-series, The Future Is. This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley and the Columbia Alumni Association. 
Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. Thank you.